everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Dr. Christian Hyam podcast, where we talk about preventative mental health. This podcast is a live recording of a webinar that was hosted by the Zonta Club of Brisbane, entitled A COVID Look at Women's Mental Health. Our hope is that it gives you a wonderful boost for your mental health during these very difficult times. So we're going to just drop right in at the start now. Welcome to a COVID look at women's mental health hosted by the wonderful Zonta Club of Brisbane. So glad that you could join us from wherever you are in Australia. We've heard there's people from all different states, so very, very welcome to you all. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Caroline Heim, and I am a senior lecturer in theatre at Queensland University of Technology. And my name is Dr. Christian Heim. Purely coincidentally with the same last name, I am a consultant psychiatrist in private practice. So, um, in a former life, I was a New York (laughs) actor with lead roles on Broadway and in other US capital cities. And in a former life, I was a classical musician and conductor, and I lectured in music at several universities. So, it's time to grab a cuppa. Pop your slippers on, settle in for an afternoon of entertainment, well, actually information mainly, and a little bit of entertainment. So in this talk, I will be drawing from both sides of my career. Number one as an academic, teaching university (coughs) students, and then also as a professional actor, and I will be performing some scenes from the plays that I've been in. Oh, some Shakespeare? Yes, some Shakespeare Shakespeare too. And I'll be drawing mainly from my clinical experience and knowledge as a psychiatrist, but you'll get a little bit of piano playing out of me as well. So just to give you an idea of the structure of the afternoon, we'll have one hour of talking and a little bit of entertainment, as I said, and then the last half hour from 4 to 4.30 is the question and answer time. However, I know that you often have questions while we're talking, so what I'll get you to do is to use the chat function, which is right down the bottom of your screen. Some of you have already been using that to put message, send off messages to us. We won't answer those during the talk, but we will certainly address them first in the question and answer session at the very end. And we'll also open it up for other questions then that anyone can ask. And as far as the information itself is concerned, we will look at the impact that COVID has had on our mental health. Uh, we will look at some student issues. We will look at female mental health. And then we will look at some boosts to your mental health. That's right. So actually, I think that we should start off with a boost at the moment. Start off with a boost? Yes. Well, we've all All been going through a really difficult time these last few months. Um, But here in Australia, we have so much to be grateful for. So I think we should start off with gratitude. Okay. We're enthusiastic about gratitude because the science is showing it's good for your physical health and good for your mental health. So what I've done is I've put together an acronym to help us cultivate the attitude of gratitude on a day-to-day basis. And it's eight reminders, and the acronym is THANKS, morning and night. T-H-A-N-K-S, morning and night. Okay, so I'm going, we're going to try and do the eight reminders in 18 seconds. Oh, I've got a timer here. We're going to see if we can do it. Um, we've got a live audience here. We haven't been able to do it in 18 seconds yet. We'll see how we go. Okay, ready, Christian? Ready. T. Think how precious life is. H. Help somebody out every day. A. Appreciate the people who are close to you. N. Notice beauty every day. K. Keep a gratitude journal to keep perspective. S. Say thank you whenever you want. Morning. I say thank you for your new day given. Night. Say thank you for the day you just had. Thank you. Ah, 17. Look, 17. I'm so excited. (laughs) It's probably the audience that helped us, I'd say. Okay. (laughs) Okay, all right. So 
Um, let's start off with the big perspective then of mental health issues that have been going on during COVID. Yes, COVID has affected us all. And when I say all, I actually mean everybody in the world. It's like all of us have been asked to carry another kilogram of anxiety with us through our days because all of us in the world have been faced with our mortality and overseas especially we have hundreds of thousands of people dying and so there's an increase in baseline anxiety for all of us and in Australia this is manifested mainly in poor sleep uh, an increase of vivid dreams people becoming a lot more irritable and even angry and as a result uh, they're experiencing more anxiety, depression, and there are even examples of suicide. Yeah. Well, I know I've, I've certainly become more irritable. Anything will just set you off like that. Yeah. Okay. That's that baseline anxiety going up. That's why. And the second thing that has come out of studies from Wuhan, China, actually, is that there has been an increase in divorces and relationship breakups. So a lot of people are used to living with somebody while they do their work and not interacting terribly much, whereas interacting on a day-by-day -day basis have put a lot of pressure on a lot of relationships. Yeah. And we know about the sad story of domestic violence, which has been increasing. And part of the reason that we are here today is raising money for Zonta's efforts to curb domestic violence. So thank you, everybody, for contributing to that. Yes, most definitely. It's a big issue. Yeah. And the last thing is that we now have a legacy of societal uncertainty. And look, this COVID crisis came on the back of a bushfire crisis. And there was already so much change, already an uncertain future. And now it feels for a lot of people that everything's been stripped away. Mm. Where is my purpose where is my meaning? Are we going to get back to where we're going to be? And how do I adjust? Now, it hasn't all been bad because it's also given us a, an opportunity to appreciate a slower lifestyle, be around people that we love, uh, actually walk the streets and say hi to people that you haven't said hello to for a long time. The dogs have been very happy. I very understand. happy, the dogs, yes. The dogs have been very happy. <laughs> and uh, just passing strangers by on the beach with a friendly good day has been very, very nice. But it's usually the older people that have been more hopeful about the future. Mm. The younger people have been much less hopeful. Yes, and you've been answering a lot of student questions, some of my student questions about mental health issues during this time. In your mental health program? Yes, so at the beginning of last year, I started a mental health program with my for my students at QUT in response to rises in anxiety issues that I noticed in them. There was also a study in 2017 by Headspace that said that 72% um, of university students had some sort of anxiety issues. I had also been interviewing actors about their anxiety. So we brought Christian in, he did a talk on how to beat anxiety, and then we had a lot of student questions, but things really got to a head and escalated when the, the bushfires hit and we had the uh, coronavirus um, pandemic. The anxiety issues went through the roof, as did many mental health issues. So Christian came in again the day before we went to online learning, actually, and gave the students a talk on moving forward into an uncertain future. And then uh, 
when we went into isolation, more issues came up. So I put up virtual walls on the internet for the students in each of the subjects where they could ask uh, or, um, anonymous questions of Christian and of, of myself, of course. And then we did some videos in answer to those questions. We've sort of been taking care of them that way throughout the coronavirus crisis. Uh, yeah, so the anxiety uh, is something that we're all bearing, but it has actually been more difficult for younger people who haven't quite got a footing in their life's journey. And that would lead to depression then. Well, that's right. So th there was actually three phases that we saw the students going through. So the first stage was anxiety, as we said, and, and worry about the future. Um, we had comments coming in such as, how do I stop worrying about absolutely everything? Um, how do I know if my anxiety should be treated medically? I've never yeah. experienced this. They were having panic attacks and things. Mm. So that was the first phase. And then the second phase, and some of you may be able to relate to these phases when you were in isolation, was a sort of apathy or, or meaninglessness about life that they felt. They, they just didn't see any way forward in future. And that's when we, we got a lot of questions about depression. I, my depression has has really come out at the moment. How do I stay healthy, help, happy when the world is falling down around me? I'm overwhelmed by everything. I don't see a future. What happens now? And then the, the, the really difficult questions about depression. Yeah, so as a psychiatrist, uh, I know that uh, anxiety does lead to depression and depression can lead to an anxiety. But one of the things that the, uh, the human brain really hates is feeling bad. And uh, we tend to do a lot of things to get away from that feeling bad. And we know that happiness is actually long-term uh, contentment. But when we're feeling bad, we tend to go for short-term pleasure, which leads to Caroline's third phase. Yes, the, the dopamine hits. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. So the last stage, and we're still really coming out of that because we're obviously not back at university yet. We saw the rise of addictions. But... A lot of students um, taking up new addictions or habits became addictions or addictions just to calm them. So we're getting questions like, um, how do I stop overeating? And I think we can all relate to that. I've certainly been putting anything I can see in my mouth lately with this cold weather. Um, my drinking is getting out of hand. I've taken up smoking because I need something to calm me. That's the students, not Carol. Yes, it's not me. <laughs> I haven't taken up smoking lately, no. Maybe I should, <laughs> to calm me. Anyway, um, so that's that's the, the journey of my students. So what were some of the things that you were talking to my students about to help them cope? Well, being in isolation and this COVID crisis also brings with it an opportunity. Uh, firstly, uh, as human beings, we are social creatures. We need each other. So what I saw as the most important thing was to encourage people to re-engage with the people who are close to them in their lives. Even if there's conflict with parents, to make sure that they were close to their parents, close to their siblings, close to friends, not so much the newly made friends, but friends from years ago because it became an opportunity to re-engage with people. When we're in relationship with other people, then we have good brain chemicals flowing. And I'm talking about dopamine pleasure, uh, oxytocin love, serotonin calm, and endorphins, that feeling that we get when we laugh or share or even cry together as human beings. So the first thing was relationships, making people that, uh, making sure that people kept up with their relationships. That's right. And the second? The second thing was uh, 
an opportunity in isolation was to self-reflect, to answer one of the big questions of life. Who am I? Oh, that's a big question. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's like Socrates, uh, Socrates said, the examined life is worth living. Mm -hmm. And although that's something that we ask ourselves uh, all throughout our, uh, our lifetime, who am I? To actually take some time and reflect on this uh, gave a chance for people to know who they were as their genuine selves, who they were as authentic human beings, rather than the roles that were given to play in society. And a lot of my students were writing their own stories. Well, their stories from their childhood. They were asking their mother, yeah. who was I as a child? What games did I play? And they, we encouraged them to write their story right up to now and into the future to give them that hope. And one of the best ways of knowing who you are is reflecting on what your values are. And uh, values are something that we get from parents, teachers, religious institutions, uh, society, law. But as we grow older, we get to choose our own values and know what's important to us. And this actually helps us live more authentically as ourselves and understand ourselves. Because... Our mind is swayed by values that are out there in society. And as we know, all that glitters is not gold. It's not all about the materialism. It's not all about recognition and celebrity. It's also about love and being authentic. Yes, so that brings us to our first Shakespeare. Shakespeare. And from The Merchant of Venice, actually. My students were all putting their hope in the future, which of course you all do, but putting their hope in the future, in a, a future that glittered, the, the bright lights of Broadway, the silver screen, um, amassing a lot of money. And we, we wanted to get them to look at, at who they really were as, as people. So uh, here we are from The Merchant of Venice. We're looking at the character of Portia, who apparently was modeled a lot on Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, attractive, wealthy, witty, highly intelligent. And at this point of the play, she is looking for a life's partner. And the way that she sorts through it is by looking to see what these men value. And in this particular one, this is a person who values gold and appearances. When Portia wants to be valued for who she is as a person. All that glitters is not gold. Often have you heard it told. Many a man his life has sold, but my outside to behold. Gilded tombs do worms enfold. Had you been as wise as bold, young in limbs, in judgment old, your answer had not been in scrolled. Fare you well, your suit is cold. Cold indeed, and labour lost. Okay, so we have looked at the big picture, okay, of the COVID and mental health issues. Now let's talk about specific female mental health issues in general. Let's start off with the female brain. If we had a male body and a female body in front of us, Differences are quite easy to see, but when it comes to the brain, the difference between a male brain and a female brain is virtually nothing. You couldn't tell them apart. Anatomically, no difference whatsoever. They're also almost identical in the way that they function. 
except for a few very small differences. But we humans are so sensitive that we are very aware of these differences. So the strength of the female brain is being verbal, uh, having more of a vocabulary, uh, speaking more, keeping relationship, which also means reaching out and making a bond when needing help. So as a psychiatrist, about two thirds of the people that I see are females. But that doesn't mean that men don't have mental health issues too. They're the ones that reach out. <laughs> the females reach out. So there are a lot of studies that say that females have more mental health issues than males. And these are all based on how often females go to see psychiatrists or GPs. So they are likely false. There are three areas of female mental health. The first one has to do with a female only issue and it has to do with reproduction. It has to do with giving birth to another human being who is attached to you. And that event can rarely give rise to postpartum psychosis. In 20% it can give rise to a postpartum depression and it's almost universally experienced on day three by women that their mood will be down because of the great hormonal changes that are going on in their bodies at that particular time. Mm -hmm. The next area is an area of mental health issues that affect us all. And uh, there are four in this area. We're talking about depression, anxiety, addictions, and trauma and suicide. Mm -hmm. So for depression, which is fast becoming the most debilitating disease in the world, I'm going, to study, uh, I'm going to focus on a study from the 1990s that showed that the more that you make money, appearances and status, your values, the more likely it is that you will receive the diagnosis of a depression. Wow. Well, that's what our society seems built on in many ways at the moment. So true, values. So true yeah. to the study, mm. depression rates are going up in all ages. Mm. Anxiety, I get a lot of information from a researcher by the name of Jean Twenge, and she's a pioneer in the area of anxiety. And she's looked at meta-analyses of people over decades. And she's found that, there, that not only are anxiety levels going up, but there are two correlations, two things that she sees as causative uh, in bringing up anxiety rates. The first one is society. And if you look at our society, it has become more threatening. Mm -hmm. There's just more reasons to be anxious. There is the fear of missing out. There is status anxiety. There is choice anxiety. There is academic anxiety. There is. There is. There's all sorts of anxiety. Social anxiety. Social anxiety. Performance anxieties and the fear of missing out, as I said, is an anxiety. And the second correlate that she sees is a loss of social cohesion. So we're losing social cohesion on a family basis because there's an increase of uh, separations uh, from long-term relationships, and we're losing social cohesion in the community sense. However, this COVID crisis has been an opportunity for us to re-engage with family, to re-engage with people that we love, and also to appreciate community. Because I've, I've had people tell me that they walk the streets and they see families interacting, parents with children, where they've never seen that before. 
Beaches are full of people wishing each other well. And there is a sense of community that we can hold if we want to. Third area is the area of addictions. And we have some recent data that shows that addictions are rising during this COVID crisis, mm. but particularly females in their 50s. Wow. Drinking a lot of alcohol. Okay, in the drinking area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the patients that I take care of uh, have more opportunities to be addicted. Now, look, anybody with a brain can be addicted because that's how the brain is wired. However, our internet has given us just more options in the addictions that we can choose. Many addictions. Yeah. Many addictions. And including then, internet addiction. Yeah. Including internet addiction. And then there's the sad area of trauma and suicide. And uh, this is where my area of expertise is. And suicide, unfortunately, has risen 33% over the last 20 years. And that is a real worry. A real worry that in the USA, the life expectancy went down from 2017 to 2018 for the first time in a long time. Uh, even though we're finding cures for cancers and taking better care of people, it went down because of the suicide rate and the overdose rate. And another worry is, although males commit suicide at three or four times the rate of females, uh, in young females, and we're talking about uh, females from the age of 10 to 24, there has been an increase in suicides and we do not yet know why. That's really alarming. It is alarming. It's very alarming. Yeah. And then the last area that I want to talk about of females and mental health issues has to do with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Uh, anorexia, where somebody who is very thin keeps complaining that they have too much weight on, and bulimia, where people overeat and then a couple of fingers down the throat will bring it all back up again. I see these as disorders of appearances, and in this we definitely see the influence of society on the human brain. And it shows that society, rather than biology, is what is driving these increases in mental health issues. So it looks as though we've got to uh, prepare our students for a world of mental health issues. Yes. Okay, so we're talking about my students um, and having to prepare them for a world of different mental health issues. In my time teaching um, over 10 years, I've seen actually three areas of uh, serious issues that impede um, my the young women's progress, um, not only academically, but as people um, and the career choices they make. So the first of these areas is, of course, anxiety. But what's really been interesting is over the past two years, we've been seeing um, questions such as, how do I get past the fear of being judged? And I feel like I'm going to fail all the time. I'm afraid of failing. And this is bringing on these anxiety issues. So what we've been putting in to help with that is a little bit is I started a comedy course where the students get to uh, perform and uh, fail and then have to pick themselves up again and perform again and fail and pick themselves up so that they learn it's okay to fail. Laughing all the time. Laughing, of course, and a lot of laughter, which is very healing for mental health, very isn't healing, it? Yeah. Healing. So that's what we've done for the students there. Um, the second issue is perfectionism. 
Now, I left a little bit of a time there because I can almost hear the virtual sigh coming across the internet, although I can't hear you. We're all perfectionists. We all like perfectionism to a certain degree. I'm a perfectionist. I love perfectionism. I don't want to get rid of it. But there are points where it can get debilitating. And one example of that is just this last week, um, I had an essay due. And uh, at just two minutes before midnight, I had a few students, a few female students, that had finished their essays but didn't hand them in because they weren't perfect. So they had written their essay but they didn't hand them in. That means that they get a zero mark for that assessment item. So that's when it's gotten to the point of being debilitating. And also invariably in the last two weeks before the essay is due, I get myriad questions from many female students, quite often a handful of about 10, what font size do I use? How many paragraphs? How many references? What kind of referencing? Etc. Etc. Now all of these questions are answered on the Blackboard site. However, they need to get it perfect. So they double check and double check and double check and ask each other and it just keeps on going until they hope to get it perfect. So perfection is something that's in all of us and it's actually not a problem. It's what drives us to do well. However, we live in a society which for two reasons is drawing out the perfectionism in us. One has to do with technology, whereas years ago we used to handwrite an essay, we now can choose fonts, size of fonts, paragraphing, formatting, and because we can get things better, we do. And this brings out perfectionism. And the other thing is that we as a society value productivity. And because of that, we like perfectionists. It's like, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And because it's a, such a strong value in society, it's bringing out the perfection in all of us. Most definitely. And even social media, of course, you've got to get that Instagram photo right. A hair can't be out of place. I've got to get the right filter. It's got to be perfect. Or even when young people go to parties. <gasps> I can't hug you right now because you might mess up my hair and there's a camera around usually. And the photos become more important than the hugs because the hug will get something out of place and you won't quite look perfect. So these are the areas where perfectionism just gets a little bit out of hand in my students. Um, and I have questions, particularly over the last three months I've had, such as I have all these obsessive tendencies that come out during times of stress, and they do come out even more and exacerbated by stress, as we've seen over the last three months. And the last issue is, and we've talked about this already, is a preoccupation with appearances. Um, and it really gets to be a problem when it turns into anorexia, and um, also when we get questions such as, I have, um, I'm, I'm never going to be the perfect weight. I hate myself. And this sense of self-loathing and never being, never loving oneself really in a way. Uh, and because we value appearances so much, this is where the self-loathing comes from. It's the idea that I'm not good enough for this world. Yeah. And the thing is that on social media, people construct a whole sense of self. And those of us who grew up without computers aren't too fussed about that, really, because our brains know that this is just a constructed world. But the people who grew up with computers more and more put their sense of identity into social media and virtual reality. Yeah. So some of the ways I've been working with my students is using the, the, the wisdom of Shakespeare, be true to thine own self, and um, also know who you really are. 
But I not only have to prepare my students for a world of appearances, which everyone seems to have to prepare themselves for now because everyone's a celebrity on their Instagram accounts or on Facebook, but I have to prepare them for a world of choices. Um, there's going to be lots of choices the young female actors have to make in their lives. And there is still, unfortunately, a certain amount of sexual harassment in the workplace, in the industry that they're going into, and in other industries, of course, in the world. But society's recognised that lately, and we have the wonderful Me Too movement that started a number of years ago. And this is fabulous because things are being put in place. Actually, I have a South Korean student at the moment that started the Me Too movement in Korea, and she's doing a Master's of Philosophy with me at QUT, and she's writing a code of conduct for um, proper behaviour in rehearsal spaces and in the industry that my students are going into. So that's a really wonderful thing that, that's going on. And our society is wonderful that way. It is grappling with issues that societies of the past have swept under the carpet. But why this increase in health issue, mental health issues? You've touched on it already with the technology, but yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So uh, there are psychiatrists that see things from a very biological perspective and psychiatrists like myself that see things more from a psychological or a sociological uh, perspective. And it used to be that when somebody came to see a psychiatrist with, let's say, depression, that a psychiatrist would say, uh, yes, you have an imbalance in your brain and I can give you a medication to change the chemicals in your brain. Now we're changing the paradigm because we no longer believe, well, that is, this is a controversial area, but I no longer believe that it is biology or genetics because we are seeing huge increases in mental health issues across the board. And if it were our genetics and our, our biology, we wouldn't see these kind of increases because our genetic makeup hasn't changed appreciably for about 60,000 years now. Mm -hmm. So why all these increases in mental health issues? And they are genuine. A, a suicide rate of 33% increase does not happen out of the blue. It has to do with the environment. It has to do with things about how we live. And sometimes we don't like to admit this because it makes us feel powerless. But there's a new science, the science of epigenetics, which after we mapped the human genome and it didn't give us all the answers that we were hoping for, this science of looking at what happens on top of genetics has made some wonderful discoveries. It has found out that a gene will or will not be expressed depending on the choices that we make. So in other words, our thoughts, our feelings, our choices, our intentions actually turn on or off our genetics. So it is the environment which means that we have much more of a choice than we realize because for the past 60 years, it, it almost seems a dogma that we say that we are nothing but chemicals and reactions among molecules. And that it's all random. And that yeah. it's all random. And we're finding that we have a lot more choice than we realized. So it's a science of choice, really, this, in that way. That's a nice way yeah. of putting it, a okay. science yeah. of choice. Uh, so, for example, I worked with uh, somebody who's an endocrinologist, a, a specialist in diabetes, who had a very strong family history of diabetes, yet he didn't have diabetes. And I asked him, why? And he said, because of the choices that I've made. 
I have beaten my genetics because of the choices that I have made. So, as a psychiatrist, I want to let you know that you can beat psychiatric illness with some of the choices that you make, or at least you can stack the odds in your favor. So I'm going to use some buzzwords like feeling empowered, being proactive, being assertive, spirited and determined. And these are the kind of words that we use to encourage, let's say, young females in their careers, in their yes. studies and in their work. Yes, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But we can always encourage them also to pour their spirited determination into their relationships taking charge of their mental health, mm. knowing who they are, knowing their values so that they are able to value themselves as people. And earlier we talked about the importance of values because they all drive knowing who you are as a person. Because the bottom line for us all, we are all human beings. We are fellow sojourners through this strange thing called life and if we are able to make a connection with another human being as a human being, that feels wonderful. That's right. And so again, it's the choices that you make and choices about your values. And there was a woman that I played, of course, it's Portia again from The Merchant of Venice that made very good choices and really knew who she was. So if I'll, give, I'll just get you to give you a little bit of a background, we'll do our second Shakespeare. So we're going to later in the play, this is the Merchant of Venice where Portia has taken on the role of a lawyer. And she's caught up in this case where one merchant, Shylock, uh, wants basically to have justice against another merchant, but that will mean that the other merchant will probably die. So what Portia does, and she does this because she knows herself well, she sees herself as a human being, she goes out of role, she stops the role of being a judge and a lawyer, and she becomes a human being. And she appeals to another human being, Shylock, to be human, to find some compassion. quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that receives. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes a throned monarch better than his crown. A scepter that shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings and queens. But mercy is above that sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the very hearts of kings and queens. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show like as gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Justice be thy plea. Consider this, that in the course of justice, none should see salvation. And what's really lovely is the rain has just started to fall outside now, as I was saying that. <laughs> okay. Thanks. So um, that was uh, the last of Portia, but let's actually talk a little bit about more women's issues. We talked about 
um, postnatal depression and other women's health issues. But what we didn't touch about is the roles that women play in life. And, and I know that this is something that my students struggle with and, and that we, we all struggle at, with at different times. And that is that work mother balance, okay? So that the home work balance when we have those choices to make. And it puts a lot of the women that I see and, and, and teach under a lot of pressure making those choices. And this is a huge issue for some of the people that I treat as well. And it puts a lot of women that I treat under a lot of pressure as well. I have worked with uh, women in their late 30s that go, well, I better have a child. Do I want to have a child? And then when they find out that it's not that easy to fall pregnant and they go on that roller coaster ride of IVF, it becomes more of an emotional burden. Or I will work with uh, a female in their early 20s studying at university. And aside from whatever mental health issue we're working on, uh, they're planning their lives. Okay, so this is the study that I want to do. This is the career that I want to have. Um, I want to have a relationship as well. Uh, do I want to have children? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, but then that will mean a hiatus in my career. And it becomes quite an issue. And then there are people in their 50s and the 60s that I have worked with. I have worked with women who regret not having had a child. I've worked with women who regret all the sacrifice that it took to have a child or to have children when they would have liked a bit more self-expression as well. And then there are women that I have worked with that in their 60s and their 70s, they look at some of the opportunities that women in their 20s have these days and they go, you know what, I just would have liked a few more of those opportunities that you have, that I didn't have. At least you have choice. But this whole issue of home career balance is a huge one because of the biological reality that we have at the moment that females are the bearers of new life. So that brings me to a tale of two queens, one of which I played in a, in a production that we did. So uh, one of them is a working woman and the other one is a working woman and a mother. And in this scene, actually, they're, they're really playing with this dilemma, working out, you know, did they make the right decisions in life? And some of those decisions changed the course of history. So would you like to give us a bit of a background to that? Yes. And this decision will be different for different people, but here we're talking about high stakes. We're talking about Mary, Queen of Scots, who had a son who was to become James I of England and Scotland, and Queen Elizabeth I of England, her nemesis, who decided not to marry, decided not to have children, so that she could rule well in very difficult times. And here, these two queens probably never met. We're not sure, but Queen Elizabeth imprisons Mary, and that's why Caroline's lit a candle, because imagine, if you will, if you will, that we are in a prison and we have Elizabeth I speaking to Mary. In these uncertain times, it's slippery going for us all. I am all women. I must be. One's a young girl, 
young and harrowed as you are, who could weep to see you here, and one's a bitterness at what I've lost and can never have. And one's the basilisk you saw. This last stands guard, and I obey it. Oh, now you gull by what is written in histories, this or that, never true. I am careful of my name, as you are, for this day and longer. It's not what happens that matters. It's not even what happens that's true. But what we believe to have happened. What will be said about us in years to come? I control that, being who I am. It will be said of me that I governed well. And Mary, Queen of Scots. Oh, I must lie here, darkened from the news and the sun. Lie here, impaled on a brain's agony, some, wondering sometimes if I were what they said of me, a carrion thing in my desires. Can you understand this? You know, when all's said and done, it's my name I care for. My name and my heart to keep them clean. Win now. Take your triumph now. For I'll win hearts in the end. Though the sifting takes this hundred years or a thousand. You'll find me here still, smiling, open-hearted, unchanged while the cusped hills wear down. Leave me here and set me this lower year by year, as you promise, till the last is an oubliette and my name inscribed on the four winds. Still, still, I win. I have been a woman. I have loved as a woman loves. I have lost as a woman loses. I have borne a son, and he shall reign Scotland and England. And after that, Mary, Queen of Scots, was beheaded. Oh, we're not going to end off with that, though, with a beheading. We're going to end off with some wonderful tips for you to take with you to give a boost for your mental health. All right, but, but first let, let me just say a few remarks overall. Uh, we're talking about preventative mental health. We don't want people to uh, end up with depression or anxiety, and we want a boost for your mental health. So just as an overall thing, everybody who has been in this COVID crisis will have learned something about themselves, learned something about the people close to them, and learned something about all of society. And our brains are wired to learn and through that, we can apply what we've learned. Uh, and the thing is that it's really strange. We are really getting science on things that we know are good. It's basically telling us what you think is good is good for you. 
What you think is not good for you is not good for you. So we have science to tell us that being out in nature, good for you, at least two hours a week. Gratitude is good for you. Love is good for you. Forgiveness is good for you. People are good for you. Exercise is good for you. Laughter is good Laughter for you. Laughter is good for you. Basically, if you think it's good, it's good. It's the choices we make. And the difficult thing is, why do we sometimes, often, make choices that are not in our own best interests? And the thing is to take charge of this area. Mm. And that's more than anything what I'm going to be talking about. But let me be a little bit idealistic first. Can I? Can yes, I do that? absolutely. All right. Let's go ahead. <laughs> so to uh, young women who feel that their dreams won't come true, who have started their studies, who have started a career, started new work, I want to say to you, please keep dreaming. If you stop dreaming, we stop living. Nobody can guarantee if dreams are going to come true, but if you don't dream, then they can't come true. Try to be who you wanted to be when you were five, when you were 10, when you were 12. It's a kind of a case of reach for the stars and you may hit the moon. But if you don't reach for the stars in the first place, there's no way you're gonna get off this earth, okay? But dream not only in career and materialism and um, uh, fame, Dream also the person that you want to be, the relationships that you want to have, the values that you hold dear, and your authenticity as a human being. Yeah. And to people who are, let's say, more experienced in receiving accolades of having experienced birthdays, uh, and you're asking, well, how do I contribute now? Contribute. We need your wisdom. And I know it's a cliche, the older we get, the more wisdom we get. But we live in a society full of data, information, knowledge, and none of these are wisdom. You see, data is not information. Information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not facts. And facts are by no means wisdom. Wisdom is using experience to apply the facts and the knowledge. Wisdom is being skilled in human relationships and knowing when to do something and when not to do something to get the right outcome. Wisdom is knowing when to say something and when to let things go. So please contribute, particularly to younger women that yes. will need women. Most definitely, and reach out a helping hand, be a mentor to someone that's younger. I have a few nieces that I reach out to in that way, and, yes. um, and adopted daughters too. So you've always got that role, and it's so important. They hold on to that so much. Okay, so to keep the power with you and to feel empowered, the first thing that I want to talk about is values. If you have never thought about what your values are, then find some time on a lonely beach or out in the bush and ask yourself four questions. What motivates me to do well? What motivates me to do well? What do I admire in myself and others? What do I admire my in, in myself and others? What do I believe is the right thing for me to do? What do I believe is the right thing for me to do? And when do I feel most fulfilled and full of respect? And when do I feel most fulfilled 
and full of respect. These are questions that only you can find the answer to. Nobody can tell you what your values are. And we live in a society of competing uh, agenda and people do try to influence each other's values. But when you know your values, you can use those to guide your goals, guide your behavior, guide your decision-making and guide your priorities. It will help you to be true to yourself. This above all else, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night the day, then canst thou be false to no one. Knowing your values and living out of your values is a big part of a lot of uh, psychological therapies at the moment. It's a central tenant of positive psychology. It's a central tenant of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which I use a lot of. And the difficulty is committing to living out of your values. It's one thing to know them, but then to say, okay, right, I've actually got to use this to make a difference. And when you're able to do that, you're in control. You're giving yourself as much choice as you can have in a world like this, and you will be protecting yourself against anxiety, depression, and addictions because you will feel better inside yourself. Also, there's that point in life where you say, okay, I'm going to reevaluate my values or have mm. I been true to my values? And so at, at, at any, any stage in life, this is a really important thing to do. Yeah, so the next thing that I want to talk about is actually looking at that question, the lifelong question, who am I? And this is the insight that I'd like to share. You are a human being, not a human doing. We place so much value in what we do in society and everything that we can do in society is open to judgment. If you write an essay for university, somebody's got to give it a mark out of 100 and it may even be in red pen. Okay, anything that you do at work or even when you're playing a friendly game of bowls, other people will be judging how well you did at bowls. However, when it comes to you as a person, you as a human being, in essence, that actually can't be judged. You simply are. You simply are yourself. And around the people that care for you and with whom you share love, they will accept you for who you are because you're not in a role. We play a lot of roles in this life, students, teachers, grandmothers, children, parents, doctors, lawyers, they're all roles. But you get to be who you are when you are a human being. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players and each of us in our times plays many parts. When you can be your authentic self, then you protect yourself from the emptiness of depression and the emptiness of personality disorders because you feel that you can make the choices that life calls upon you to make. Right. But all that gets expressed in our relationships. Yes. So I suppose this is where we, where we want to spend a little bit of time because all our relationships are important. Decades ago, we took our relationships for granted. We would live in a town with the same family, friends, and people around us in greater community, whereas now we seem to live in a sea of strangers and a lot of people are living alone. And lonely. And lonely without a companion. 
I would not wish any companion in the world but you. They do not love who do not show their love. So the difficulty is in how do we show love? And so I'm going to use the example of a mother-daughter relationship, but it, this actually goes for all relationships. Sisters, grandmother, granddaughter, whatever. And with the men in your life as well, <laughs> okay? Uh, but I'll use this as an example. And the first thing is time. Have to spend time together. Time together, looking at each other, sitting down in a space. Uh, a cup of tea always comes to mind when you want yes. to go a little bit for a deeper. Good chat. For yeah. a good chat, that's right. Yeah. So we're looking at um, the mother being a, a listener and a daughter being a talker. Okay. Okay. Because we have a whole lot of different conversations. A conversation is actually a two-way street. But I want to introduce you to a listening session because a listening session is actually a one-way street where one person is there for the other person and encourages the other person to speak and makes it safe for them to speak. Mm -hmm. It's difficult being a listener because you will have to hold back a whole lot of thoughts and feelings that are going through your head uh, so that rather than making judgments and passing opinions, you merely accept the person just where they are and who they are. You have to shelve those judgments for a while because your head will be screaming, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're saying this to me. <laughs> and it's very difficult to do, but the job is to make it safe for the person to share what they need to share. And you ask questions, questions that will keep the story flowing, questions like, and then what happened? Or what would you like to share with me about that? And how did you feel about that? And can you please tell me more about that? All of those questions get more of a story from the other person and you are there simply to be with them. Mm. Listening says, I love you. It's a love language. And then the responses can't be answers. You, you're not there to problem solve. It's got to be, mm-hmm, uh-huh, I hear you, I understand. And then there's the, the, the daughter that has to have the courage to actually say the things that she needs to say. It does take courage to overcome vulnerability. That's right. Mum, I just need to talk to you. You know, I've been really anxious lately and I don't know why. Can we just talk? Now, it's so hard if you're in a certain role. They're not the kind of things I talk to about with my mum or my sister or my grandma. They're not the things that, that I play certain roles with different people, but to go deeper in the relationship so that you're taken care of, your mental health is taken care of. That's where you need to go. And as a talker, your, your role is to actually say it. If you care, then you will share. Because what you do is you share reality. And that's when you feel in marvellous relationship with somebody else. That feeling of, oh my gosh, somebody actually understands what I'm going through. Or at least accepts what I'm going through. Or at least has listened to what I'm going through. Because as a psychiatrist, I know that bottling things up comes at a cost. It'll come out some other way. So two things to remember when you're talking is to be gentle and to be honest rather than attacking or defensive. Now, I'm somebody who could work on being a bit more gentle. Yes, times. you could. <laughs> and I could be work on being a bit more honest because I do tend to push and suppress some of the things when I need to talk about them more. But when you make that connection, it feels wonderful.
Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. All right. I think Good we need day. to finish it off with wonderful. Finish off with wonderful. Okay. I think we should finish off with some gratitude. <laughs> yes, we're going to finish off with some gratitude. We're going to go through that acronym slowly because the science tells us that if you can cultivate the attitude of gratitude, you will have lower blood pressure, better sleep. You will take better care of your body. Your memories will be better. You will experience more positive emotions. You will cope better in adversity and you'll actually achieve your goals better. So to cultivate the attitude of gratitude on a daily basis, the acronym is THANKS, morning and night. T-H-A-N-K-S, morning and night. And we're not going to try and do it in timing. No, we're going to pull are. it apart a bit more here. Okay, T. T is to think about how precious life actually is. If it were taken away, it would all be over, but we have life and for that we can be grateful. H. H is to help somebody out every day, even if it's just by giving directions. You make a human connection with another person when you help somebody out. Kindness. A. Appreciate the people who are close to you. N. N is to notice beauty. If it's a butterfly, a flower, a smile, or an encouraging word, or eye contact, noticing these things mean that you actually get the goodness of the positive emotions that are associated with it. K. K is to keep a gratitude journal or a gratitude diary to keep perspective. Because in our minds, we tend to keep a list of the things that go wrong. But if you keep a written record of the things that you can be grateful for on those days when you're not feeling great about life, you can go through and read what you have written about things for which you can be grateful. S. S is to say thank you anytime that you get the opportunity to, because when you say thank you, you raise the dopamine pleasure, the oxytocin love, the endorphin sharing, and the serotonin calm for the other person and for yourself. All the happy brain chemicals, that's what we want. Morning. When you wake up and you regain consciousness, say thank you for another 24 hours freely given to live life further. And night. Night. Say thank you for your day, no matter how bad it's been. In fact, particularly when it's been a bad day, say thank you because chances are the next day you'll get another 24 hours to live life further. Thank, thank you. you for listening. So there's a challenge for you. Thanks morning and night for a boost for your mental health and look at values, relationship, who you are and listening as a boost for your mental health. Okay, ladies. And if there are any gentlemen there, welcome. <laughs> there might be some listening in, who knows? Okay, this is the time for our question and answer session. So I've noticed quite a few different questions coming in at the moment. I'm just going to go onto gallery view and um, you're very welcome to put your video back on again um, and unmute because um, we'd really like to see some faces there. We've been speaking to a blank screen. Actually, no, we've been speaking to one person that kept their video on the whole time. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go back um, and have a look at some of these questions. Okay. Um, ah, please let us know the full gratitude thing, morning, thanks, morning and night. I hope you've got that now. Um, Sam, I, I, we'll, we'll certainly put that up on our, our website too if you want to have a look at that. Okay, so, so um, another question is, can you um, status, address status anxiety where older, high-achieving career women can feel less valued and marginalised in the workplace? especially by male co-workers? That's a really important question. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you for the question. Uh, it's, uh, it, it raises a whole lot of issues, the whole idea of status anxiety. And I suppose uh, what I'm encouraging in this talk is to find your sense of value in who you are as a person and the people who, uh, with whom you're in relationship. Because in the workplace, you have less control of how other people um, treat you. And uh, we're in a society that's working on things like that, and it's a huge issue. But if you feel a sense of worth in who you are and valued by the people around you, then when things like this happen, uh, you can hold your own because your status are, is in who you are as a person. And I know that that's dodging the, the question. <laughs> People over productivity. It, well, it's pe you're, putting you're people human. over. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right then. So another question is: um, uh, Could you please list the values questions? Okay. So. Uh, yeah, uh, I think in our values. Ah yes. Okay. The, so the, we've the, just put up that? some values. Yes, and it, we have a values. Um, Video. video series that, that came out a, a few weeks ago. So that'll be up on the YouTube channel. And we certainly will address the values questions there in three different videos um, and go into it in a bit more depth. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other question is, uh, yes? No, I was just going to say that basically, uh, when do I feel most full of self-respect? What do I most admire in myself uh, and other people? What motivates me to do well? And who knows what the last one was? <laughs> well, you've got to remember that. Oh, that's it. What do I believe is the right thing for me to do? There we go. So there's uh, some people writing it down. That's great. Okay. Okay, so um, this is from Kim. Um, Aboriginal people call this the D-A-D-I-R-R-I, Dadiri, um, deep listening. You can Google it on YouTube. It's very insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Kim. I really appreciate that comment. Okay. Um, all right, so there's another one. And we are going to open it up to other questions too where you can unmute. Um, we either think about your values four points. What were the three again, please? Okay, well, we just repeated those then. Yeah, yep. okay. All right, and they are. there is actually a podcast on that too. Is I'll it? have to put, make sure that that's written there down, that, 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 that they're, they're um, highlighted in that. Um, my question is, how can I help my daughter um, who goes through pretty bad anxiety and support her as a mum. Okay, so... Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's a really nice question. And, yeah. and this, this comes down to, firstly, uh, and look, can I say it's difficult to be a mum? Okay, because you have competing roles. Uh, as somebody who becomes responsible for getting somebody safely through from the year dot to the age of 21 or whenever we decide somebody is an adult, that is a huge responsibility and that is then at odds sometimes when you have to listen. Because sometimes when you have to listen, you have to come out of that role of being a mum, which sometimes is impossible to do. Sometimes your role is actually to be a mother. Uh, but I'd encourage you as much as you can just to listen and be there because that gives somebody a sense of strength, knowing that somebody accepts somebody just the way that they are. And it makes the anxiety feel a lot less of a problem. And then of course, there's a question as to whether the anxiety needs to be professionally handled or not. But your primary role is going to be 
as a mother. And that person was connected to you by a cord that has a consistency of calamari, okay? <laughs> strong calamari, all right? It's an amazing bond that two people have. Thank you so much for the question. Okay, so we don't have any more in the chats that came up during the actual talk, but if you have any more questions, um, this is the time now to unmute and ask the questions. I'll leave you to mediate all of this, yeah? Yeah. Okay, that's good. Okay, so we're seeing faces here. So anything that came up about anything we've said or anything else to do with um, women's mental health issues, we're happy to address those right now. We didn't get into the real specifics, um, but yes, happy to answer anything yeah, and now. Yeah, we could go over that because I, I want yeah. to leave room. Oh, it's it's okay. Kim here. Um, Thanks, Kim. I'm just wondering how you would address the women who are perhaps too anxious to come out of the house um, mm. to maybe attend a women's group or program. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so uh, when it gets to the stage when somebody is too anxious to come out of the house, uh, that's actually an indication that that anxiety needs to be professionally looked at uh, because that by definition becomes a condition that we know is agoraphobia. And uh, it's, it's very difficult, particularly for, for uh, older women because there's that feeling of being vulnerable. And uh, in a sea of strangers, sometimes that feeling is compounded. But uh, I would look uh, professionally uh, to seeing if there's a psychologist that you, uh, that you can see about that. Uh, otherwise, there, there is the internet and the resources on the internet are getting more and more. Uh, and uh, just typing in how to deal with agoraphobia or how to find an internet psychologist to help deal with agoraphobia. Uh, because a condition like that would need a thorough history of, of life to see what's contributing to all that because it looks like there's this one thing that's happening but there could have been 20 or 30 different things that caused that one condition for pe a person not to get out of the house. Yeah. We've also found since COVID too that, that added worry, I guess, of yes. early, particularly early about, you know, infection and everything else. So they didn't want to come out um, with their young children for fear of infection as well. So it's added that extra level, if you will. Uh, and it has added an extra level because that's actually a real fear uh, rather than an anxiety. Uh, it, it is risky business to go into society now, particularly for people who are in high-risk groups. Yeah. But well, we've actually met a few people that have overcome that fear too. Um, remember that yep. one? Yes. And she, she, she worked with a, a psychologist and a psychiatrist yep. on yep. that. Yeah. Yep. So we've got a few more questions that have come in through here. Okay. Um, uh, yes, someone just asked about the recording. We are we do have a podcast. This is going to be a podcast recording and everyone that attends and has registered will get a link to the recording that you can share with people too if you'd like also. Um, another question, can you comment on the role of exercise? And that's so important for depression. It too, is isn't it? very important for depression. It's, it's something that I didn't comment on much today, but exercise, it's just good for the brain. It's just good for the body. It's just good for us. Uh, if you think that the blood flow to the brain brings nutrients, takes away toxic wastes, but specifically for depression, we have study after study after study that shows that exercise is protective against depression and helps recovery for depression. So uh, please 
everybody exercises, the body gets to strut its stuff when it exercises, uh, it feels good. And it releases all those wonderful brain chemicals, yeah. Okay, so another one is related to depression also, and that is how do I know if my friend is depressed, not just sad or anxious? Such a good question. Yeah, that's actually a very, very difficult question. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the question is how do I know if a friend is depressed and not just sad or anxious? Uh, the first thing that comes up is a safety issue. Uh, because we do know that depression does lead to suicide. So uh, I would actually ask a question like, are you okay? Do I need to help you find some help? Is there anything that you want to talk about? And I, I use the analogy of our society sometimes being like this huge ocean where the waves get too big for all of us. And so we can be swimming in this ocean and feel like we're drowning. And we need somebody, our close relationships, just to be swimming beside us or just putting out a helping hand to say, I'm here. And whatever you do, if you feel that a friend is drowning, make sure that that hand of yours is there all the time. If they say, no, I'm fine, but you're not feeling that they're fine, give them another call, say something more, go that extra mile so that that hand is still there for them because some people can get depressed and angry at the same time and they will push other people away and push help away. And they don't mean to do this, it's the depression that's driving all of this. So sometimes your role is to be a friend. Uh, also, if you yourself are worried, then it's actually worth making a phone call to see what you ought to do for that specific situation. Uh, I, I tend to use Lifeline a lot, uh, 13114. Uh, they can give you advice over the phone for your particular situation where you can talk for as long as it takes to find the right answer for that particular situation. But a very important question. Thank you very much. Okay, what was the name of the author that you mentioned that has written about anxiety? The twin, it was Jean Twenge, wasn't it? Oh, Jean yes. Twenge, yes. Yes. Yes, uh, she's a researcher and uh, uh, publishes a lot of paper. I'm not sure if she has actually written a book. Uh, if she has written a book, the name would be The Age of Anxiety. Now, I'm not sure if that's a book that she's uh, written or a seminal uh, publication that she had, but she does a lot of research in this area, and if she has written a book, I have not read it, but I would I would recommend it. Because you've seen the studies, but she, I, yeah, she I, may I've, have actually... I've looked at yeah, all of the studies, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So would you like to comment on the range of online programs for anxiety and depression um, and the apps that are now available? Okay. Okay, just before we go on, Jean uh, Twenge is T-W-E-N-G-E. Okay, so this is about the online programs for anxiety and depression and the apps that are available. Are they good? You know, are they? I mean, it's it's all online, isn't it? It's not the same as seeing a psychiatrist, but yeah, you don't want to comment on them. No, it's not no. that I don't want to comment. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to formulate the best comment because uh, a lot of the things that are online are really, really helpful because it is empowering for people to take control of their own mental health. And knowledge is power. It is worthwhile as long as you can apply it in your life. However, if you're at the stage where you have the diagnosis of the depression or the diagnosis of the clinical anxiety, I believe it's best to see somebody first because 
anybody on the internet uh, has to cover all bases and to do that in words is actually an impossible task. What's growing a lot is uh, internet psychologists and internet psychiatrists. At the moment, I'm doing all my psychiatric work on the net and uh, there's newly sprung up psychiatrists uh, that will see anybody in Australia over the internet. And uh, that has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the advantage is uh, particularly people who feel that they can't get out of the home, uh, it's an obvious advantage. Uh, I like to do work with people that I have already seen face-to-face uh, -face because it is when we're face-to-face -face that we're sharing empathy, compassion, oxytocin, dopamine and serotonin. It's being together as human beings. So I, I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, it's basically saying that all in all, it's helpful, but there's still a place for face-to-face -face people. Yeah, it, you, you'll also find that uh, in talks like these, I emphasize a lot about relationships. And uh, there's a scientific reason for that, uh, that a lot of our brains are actually dedicated to other people. So uh, since the 1990s, when we discovered what's called mirror neurons, where we monitor each other very, very closely, this science has been growing. And uh, there was a study last year that showed uh, the anterior cingulate gyrus, which is uh, a part deep inside the brain, it shrinks in people who do not have contact with other people. So this is a study that came out of China, where students who spend more than eight hours a day on a phone uh, had their brains measured. And this part of the brain, which takes care of empathy, our connection with other people, was shrinking. And that measurement was able to be taken within a year. So if the brain can lose that part of the brain of empathy, it means that if we actually practice empathy, if we actually make eye contact with people, if we have the encouraging touches, if we actually say things to each other to encourage each other, if we actually interact and talk, those empathy areas of our brain get better. They get bigger. And so it was about a decade ago that I was at the conference where we found out that the brain is wired to learn. Over these last 10 years, we've actually learned that the brain is wired to love. We are wired to be in connection with each other, but we have some things in our society, particularly our screen technology, that is pulling against this amazing ability that we as humans have to love one another, to empathize, to be compassionate, and to help each other through those high seas of life. Okay, and that's what we need to be doing. Is that what we need yeah, to be doing? Yeah, I think okay. so. Are there any more questions before we finish off? We've got a few more minutes, but I think that's a great yeah. place to end on. No. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for supporting Zonta and their efforts to curb domestic violence. And thank you so much for listening today. Yes, it's been wonderful to have your company on this rainy Sunday afternoon. And all the best for you. Thanks, morning and night with gratitude. Okay.